What are the critical leadership habits every successful leader should build and protect? Jeff Goins is our guest this week discussing how leaders can know their passions and make sure they are pursuing them every day. It's all in episode 64 of the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host, podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, Andrew Hess. Well, thanks for tuning in to episode 64 of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm Andrew Hess, your host, and this week we're talking with Jeff Goins. Jeff is the author of four books, including the national bestseller, The Art of Work. On his popular blog, he talks about writing and life, leadership and creativity. And we wanted to talk to Jeff particularly about the critical leadership habits that every leader should have in place as they go out into uh, their work. And now, here's our conversation with Jeff Goins. Jeff, it is so great to have you on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Now you are a writer, blogger, speaker. Um, you do a lot, and uh, we've I've followed your career and your your path and your creativity for a while. Really appreciate it, and what you do for um, both creatives, um, leaders, and just what you're doing in the church today too. So, looking forward to this conversation very much. Thanks, me too. So uh, let's catch everybody up really quick for those of you. Uh, who are listening right now and are kind of wondering who Jeff Goins is. Jeff, could you give us a quick snapshot of who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, you know, I just typically say I'm a writer, but that's not what I thought I would be growing up. Uh, I've always been sort of a creative. So when I was a kid, I drew cartoons of Garfield. And when I was a teenager, I got into music. I went to college and I studied Spanish and religion and had this, you know, really promising career ahead of me doing what I don't know uh you know musical <laughs> spanish speaking cats <laughs> it's perfect uh, and so and so uh, in, I didn't grow up in the church so I became a christian in college ministry became an important part of my life I graduated from college joined a music ministry and got to do what I thought I always wanted to do which was be a rock star uh which is anybody who plays music in churches I'm sure knows what that feels like you always feel like a rock star uh lots of casseroles and things like that um, but it was it was great. It was it was an amazing year. What I didn't anticipate was that I was going to grow a lot more as a leader than as a musician that year. I, I became a great musician, but it was really the leadership lessons of having to learn uh, about how to guide and lead uh, a team of my peers. We were a ministry team uh, traveling all over the U.S. for a year, and I was the leader. And uh, so it was it was a really interesting experience. At the end of that, uh, a friend of mine who is a bass player. Uh, I remember him having a conversation with um, like our drummer or something, and he goes, man, if I couldn't play music, I don't know what I would do. And I immediately thought, oh, like if I couldn't play music, I would just go do something else. And that was a really good indication to me that like maybe being a worship leader was not my calling. And as much as I liked it, like if I could just go drop it and go do something else, maybe this is, wasn't what God had for me. So then I um, joined another mission organization. Uh, they hired me as a writer. I didn't realize I was a writer at the time, but writing was always something that came natural to me. I uh, was a writing tutor in college just as a way of sort of paying the bills. And I submitted my resume to this missions organization. And the executive director said, oh, you're a writer. We need more writers. He hired me as a writer. I eventually became the marketing director there. I didn't know anything about marketing, and I thought it was sort of evil. And I realized that marketing is just helping ideas spread. I learned that from Seth Godin. And, um, and I was like, well, I can do this. And that's when blogging and social media started to take off, uh, embrace those technologies, and did that for seven years. At the end of that, 
I realized what I really wanted to do was write, you know, and, and, I, and I knew this because I, I saw friends of mine doing this and I got all jealous about them. You know, I live in Nashville and, you know, we, we birth a fair amount of uh, authors and artists and musicians. And I saw people doing this and I just got angry when I saw them living their dreams. And I was in a ministry job and I was, I, I liked it, but I, I was sort of, I felt sort of trapped. I felt like I couldn't keep dreaming. And uh, what I realized was that in this job, working for this missions organization, God had been preparing me for the next season of, of work that I was going to do. And so I decided, so I started this blog and I started writing and eventually got a book published um, and, and started teaching other writers online. I started doing all these things and I started making enough money that I could quit my job, which I felt like was like disobedience to God or something. And so <laughs> I know this is a long story, but there you go. Um, I went to my boss and I said, hey, here's what's happened. And I decided like, if he doesn't let me quit my job, I'm not going to quit. Oh, wow. And, like, I, I mean, that's how much I felt like if this is what I'm called to do, then he's got to release me from this. Not in any sort of like, like he, like authoritative way where he was holding, you yeah. know, had me under his thumb or anything. He was a, a friend, a mentor. He had really given me every skill, given me opportunity to grow every skill that, that I now had. And, um, and I felt a little bit indebted to him and I wanted to honor him and, uh, and we had a healthy relationship. I realized this isn't the case for everybody. So I went to him, I said, here's what happened. I, I think I'm supposed to move on, but I won't do that if I can't get your blessing. And he goes, Jeff, I've been waiting for this conversation. Oh, wow. Uh, he, said, he said, I'm looking for, you know, I think it's time for you to move on. I'll be sad. Um, but he goes, this is what you need to do. I think this is what God's calling you to do. And so of course you have my blessing. You can go. And um, so, yeah, so I've been doing that ever since I've been writing books and I, I teach some online courses for uh, writers run an online business, basically. And I've been doing that for three years now. Excellent. No, that's a great story. And I think it helps us jump into kind of the first question I have for you is like, there's a lot of talk about, you know, if creatives fit in the church today. And I've talked yeah. to a lot of young adults and, um, and even, I mean, older, more mature believers who are, you know, in their 40s and 50s who are creatives at heart but yet are looking for the place where they can either be launched into ministry or launched out into ministry or fit into the church. Um, what do you think, you know, are we headed in the right direction for kind of involving and fostering creativity in the church today? Or what's your I mean, idea of it? What's the pulse of it that you grab? Yeah, well, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I'm always hesitant to talk about global issues in the church, outside of the church. Uh, but my sense is, uh, and I've been studying creativity for a while now. I'm actually working on a, on a book about this. <clears throat> and I think as a culture, we don't know what to do with creative people. And we understand that in a way we're all, you know, inherently we can all be creative, but we don't know what to do with artists and musicians and, and writers. And so creativity still kind of, you know, gets put in the corner. I talked to the, uh, the former chairman for the National Endowment uh, for the Arts, and his name's Bill Ivey, and he says, we treat art like a frill in America. And he says, art is not a frill. It is essential to the well-being of a society. So in many ways, I don't know that the church does any worse than you yeah. know, society does in general. Um, what I think is true about creative people uh, and creativity in general, I mean, creativity is typically thought of as like doing new and like different things. And so, um, we tend to go, Oh, that's other, that's different. Like we've got our, we've got our org chart. We've got our system. It doesn't necessarily necessarily fit in there. I think that's a really uncreative way to think about creativity. So I think that, um, 
I worked for ministry and we grew that ministry. I was a marketing director. We grew it all with creative work, with video, uh, graphic design, you know, copy. And, and it flourished because we put uh, creativity to work. Uh, what I realized was that creativity is not other. It's not thinking differently. Creativity, you know, I think at its core is just solving problems. I mean, I mean that's, that's how we redefined it. And I think in that sense, creativity can serve businesses, it can serve nonprofit organizations, and it can certainly serve uh, church ministries. But I, I do think the way you interact with creatives, like it's an art. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a different way. And, and what motivates a creative person may not be the same thing that motivates, you know, the executive director or the, uh, you know, the senior pastor. Um, what motivates them is they get to create something beautiful or amazing, but you can put that to work in your organization to get, you know, whatever result it is that you're looking for. No, I think that's great input. And I love that quote uh, about art not being a frill. Yeah. And it is, I think, an essential thing. And obviously it's been essential for the church as we look throughout history. I mean, some yeah. incredible, incredible innovation, ideas, design, um, like you said, um, problem solving that is happening throughout uh, the church, which has been pretty amazing too. So the, I guess I'm thinking there's a couple different audiences. Obviously there's uh, maybe the the younger, I mean, 20 something who's creative and trying to find their way in the church. And there's also right. maybe the young leader who's a pastor who knows they're a creative at heart and kind of is trying to find their way. Um, so what, what are some things you would encourage? And you've written about this quite a bit. And that's why I really want to ask this question to you is what are some things that, that someone can do to help nail down what they were meant to do in life? Um, and how, how do they find that? What are some thoughts, maybe some obstacles that get in the way that they should kind of, you mean, get by as well? But any input on that, I think would be great. Yeah, well, you know, the, I guess I'll answer that question backwards. So how do you know what you're supposed to do with your life? I love um, Parker Palmer's quote on this. Before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, I need to listen to my life telling me who I am. When I read that quote years ago, I realized, wow, like here I am working in a marketing position at a nonprofit. And when I listen to my life, which is really when I listen to God, you know, his, his voice in my soul, uh, what I realize is I'm doing these things, but they are sort of shadows of the thing that I think I really am, which is uh, creative. And I believe that activity follows identity. Uh, and so what that means is that before you can go do something, you really have to become someone. You have to believe that you are a writer before you can go write a book. You have to believe that you're an artist before you're going to go paint. And I see a lot of people trying to sort of like earn their identities through their activity. I don't think that works. I've seen it time and time again where people are striving to be this thing and they go, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough? Huh. When I started calling myself a writer, as absurd as it sounds, people were like, oh, well, what do you write? And I was like, oh, I better get busy. You know, like <laughs> I was putting myself out there and it forced yeah. me to take it seriously. And so if you're a creative in an organization, a church, whatever, I think the first thing that you need to do is own it. Believe that you are this thing and then start acting as if it's true. And over time, it's going to become true. And so it's kind of fake it till you make it. But I really believe that we have to change our mindset before we get to change our habits and, you know, the, the whatever it is that we're, we're doing. Uh, so and then, you know, there's this whole idea of I'm a creative in an organization or whatever. And I've gone to lots of conferences, as I'm sure you have some Christian conferences, some not. And I, I tell you, I don't have any patience with creatives going like my organization just doesn't understand me like the church just just doesn't let me hmm. be creative i think 
if I were talking to a pastor, I would say, you need to care about creatives. But like when I talk to creatives, I go like, it's not your job to sit in a corner and wait for people to notice how brilliant you are. It's your job to use your gifts to serve, to solve problems, to connect dots, to help people, not just wait around for, you know, the church or organization or whatever to acknowledge your genius. And that, you know, that may be hard to hear, but like, that's like, you've been given a gift and the goal of that gift is so that you keep it moving, give it away. And not just to wait for people to, you know, I don't know, like have some section of the service allocated to meeting your emotional needs. I get that. Again, if it, you know, if I'm talking to the pastor, I'm going, help those people out, meet their emotional needs. But I'm a little bit frustrated with creatives just going, nobody understands me. And we did our best work working at the nonprofit that I worked for uh, when we weren't sitting around waiting for people to ask us our advice. We did our best work when we went to different people in the organization. We said, what do you need? Oh, I really need a banner ad or I I really need a brochure or I just really need help solving this problem. Awesome. We're going to come and we're going to help you do that. There's a great book by a guy named Gordon McKenzie who used to work for uh, Hallmark called Giant, uh, Orbiting the Giant Hairball. And he talks about what it's like to be a creative working in a bureaucratic system. And he says, basically, there's just a few things that you can do. You can become a part of the hairball, get sucked up in it, become another bureaucrat. You can fly off into your own orbit and be a little planet with its own little you know, system where you can't affect anybody or have any sort of influence. Or you can orbit the giant hairball, which means you're kind of in it, but not of it. And yeah. I think that's the job of a creative in an organization. I need to influence this red tape ridden, you know, uh, organization, but I can't get caught up in it. And so every once in a while, I'm kind of pushing against it. You know, I don't think it's about conformity, but you want to have influence over that. And one of the ways that you have influence over it is you go, hey, I'm here to serve. How can I serve? And then that, that doesn't mean you don't challenge ideas or, you know, do you know, kind of contradictory things. But I love that idea of you're orbiting the hairball. You're kind of in the system. You're not flying off in your own little uh, orbit, but you're not getting sucked into it either. Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's a great perspective. And it's one of those things to think through, like you said, if you're talking to a leader or a pastor and they're trying to figure out how to work with creatives, I think that word empowering comes to mind. Just like give them the freedom to do. You mean, give them that, just the, the ability and license to say, do something, go for it. And I think on the creative side, like you said, it's there's so many creatives that I talk to and I've been in that place too where it's like, I'm just sitting back waiting. And you know I mean, choose me, you know, look at me. And I think that the outward outlet of using our gifts to serve others and it's always gonna have, I mean, God gives us these things to equip and encourage the church. And it might not be equipping and encouraging and teaching. It might be, like you said, in the arts, it might be in music, it might be in um, some other means that we look at that's really an expression of the talents that God's given you. But we have to find those outlets. For sure. Yeah. And I think if you're managing creatives, you have two jobs. One, uh, identify the vision. Set the vision. What is it that we want to create here? And then identify the outcome, the vision and the outcome. What you don't want to do is you don't want to get into that messy middle where you're saying, hey, did you do this and did you do this? I mean, that's where you get into micromanagement and it gets really messy. But I think you can set vision for a creative and then they just go and go and go and go and go and go. And they're having a blast and you're going, Where's the thing? Like yeah. we got like we got a budget or an agenda or an outcome that we need this thing for. And they're just having fun. And at the same time, uh, if you set the outcome but you don't properly set the vision, then they may think they're achieving this outcome and really they just haven't gotten, you know, the whole thing. But when I was burning my people out, people threatening to quit, and I was threatening to quit, it was when I was going through the whole process with them, holding their hands, going, What are you, why are you doing that? 
What does that look like? Where were you this morning? You know, and and I yeah. think empowering is good, but I also think creatives need structure. You know, and I think the begin setting the beginning and the end is enough freedom, but also enough structure that. Uh, you know, you, you can kind of agree on like this is going to have a, a good outcome. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Great feedback for sure. So let, let me switch gears a little bit and talk uh, to our leaders out there. And I think there's a lot of leaders who, especially in ministry, it's easy to kind of get into a routine and to find yourself kind of in status quo you know, as a leader, but also in your ministry and just to feel just because you're doing it the same. And there's a kind of a sinking feeling we get sometimes as pastors and leaders of, there should be something else happening. What is next? But I'm not doing it because I'm stuck. So how would you say for someone, I think there's a lot of kind of input in how we move forward as creatives as well you know, as leaders, but how would you encourage a leader to get unstuck? What are some things they could do to move out of the status quo where they're at? Is this in regards to working with creatives or just in general? Just in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, getting unstuck, I think is, uh, I mean, obviously there's lots of ways to uh, get stuck. Uh, one of the things that I think um, is sort of a lost art, and I, I've seen this especially in ministry, is this idea of apprenticeship. So, you know, in the Renaissance, the, the Middle Ages, we had this process by which people got better, by which people became professionals at their crafts. And we don't have that process anymore. So, you know, you may end up in an organization as a leader uh, with a bunch of people who are way ahead of you or way behind you, and there's no sort of standard of here's what it means to be a professional person or here's what it means to be a part of an organization. And what I think is is really useful is setting some sort of tone of apprenticeship. Now, like, you're not going to, like, say, hey, come into my uh, – uh, my blacksmith shop, and I'm going to teach you how to, you know, uh, uh, you know, hammer iron for ten years. But when I was studying apprenticeship, because I was really fascinated with what does it take to become great at what you do, and how do you know when you're ready? There's this, you know, old scene in Fight Club where uh, Brad Pitt is, is talking to Edward Norton, and he's saying every year he talks to his dad on the phone. And, and, you know, he graduates high school and he says, okay, dad, what do I do now? He says, go to college, go to college. He goes, what do I do now? He goes, go get a job. Okay, what do I do now? Every, every year calls his dad uh, and he goes, oh, you know, start a family, start a family. He goes, uh, you know, um, have some kids. He has some kids and he goes, okay, what do I do now? He goes, well, I don't know. I mean, that's it. You know, and it just feels sort of, <laughs> why did I, why did I do this thing? Yeah. And I think your career can be this way. Leadership can be this way. Get the next position, get the next position. Like, what is the point? Well, I think the point is to become great and ultimately to become a master. So the three stages of apprenticeship uh, are apprentice, journeyman, master. It's very different from like the best we have in our society these days is an internship, which is like there's three types of internships are coffee catcher, donut snatcher, and uh, secretary. You know, like person who's like answering the, the calls or something like that's the best experience yeah. to get. When in reality, apprenticeship was a 10-year process where you were following in the footsteps of your master. And um, at the end of that experience, you know, you'd be an apprentice for about seven years in the shop, just serving, not getting paid. They gave you food and room and, bo- you know, room and board, and that was it. Then two to three years of being a journeyman, going out and wandering the land, practicing your craft, and then you became a master. And the way that you became a master was you submitted a masterwork, also called a masterpiece, to the guild. And the guild said, this is good or this isn't good. And if it was good enough, you became a master and you got to take on other apprentices. If not, you might be a journeyman for the rest of your life. 
So what does that have to do with leadership? Well, you don't become a leader by a title. You become a leader because you follow a process. And if you're stuck, this is important, if you're stuck, it may be that you don't understand the process. Now this three-step process is a little bit arbitrary and everybody's journey is gonna be a little bit different. But when I read this, I realized something. I worked at this job for seven years and I learned how to be a good marketer, how to write, how to spread a message. I took all those lessons, I applied it to starting a writing career and I went out and like two years into that, I felt stuck. I had, I had my own business, I had my own organization, I had people working under me, and I was like, what's wrong? Like, I've arrived and I feel stuck. Well, I realized is that I was a journeyman. What does being a journeyman mean? It means you're, you know, 70% of the way through the journey to becoming a master, and it's filled with angst, because the job of a journeyman is to prove himself or herself. And what that means is, you're, you know, you're not there yet, you have to do something great that your peers go, wow, that's amazing. Now, what does that look like for leadership? I think if, you, if you're getting stuck, it's really a question of where am I at in the process and, and where do I need to go next? I mean, this is, you know, this is different from like, I don't know, some sort of inspirational quote on Instagram that says, you know, you know, when you're stuck, just dig in harder. But I think understanding the process of what it takes to become great and that ultimately the point of whatever it is that you do is to raise up other people to become leaders under you. I think is is a lost art in ministry and in business, you know, wherever you are. So if, if you're stuck, I think you have to remember your job is to multiply yourself. Like that's greatness. And if you're not doing that, you need to ask yourself, where am I really? Have I done something great that people have gone, wow, that's amazing? Or, you know, am I still apprenticing? Am I still, you know, journeying? I don't know about you, Brian, but I meet so many people who, you know, are just getting started in their careers and they act like masters. They act like they know what's up because they got a Twitter account or whatever and they, you know, they tweet inspirational quotes and they're apprentices. And I uh, applied for a job one time and they said, if you get this job, you have these five things that you have to do. And, and we don't want to talk about anything else for the first 12 months. I said, but I've got all kinds of ideas, guys. I'm a creative guy. They go, no, 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 you don't understand. You've got five jobs. You do f those five things in the next 12 months and we could talk about anything else. Uh, when I went to work for this mission organization, I was the leader at the previous organization that I was at. And the executive director said, he goes, you're probably going to have to like, you know, sweep the floors and do this and do that. And he was speaking hyperbolically. I mean, he was being, you know, figurative. But um, I started out like writing email copy. And I, you know, I started doing these little things. And one year for the summer, he went to Africa because it was a mission organization for a month. He said, hey, what do you know about marketing? I said, I don't know anything about marketing. He goes, hey, here's this spreadsheet. We send out an email every week and then, you know, certain people sign up for this thing and your job is to manage the spreadsheet for a month. And so I said, okay, I take this and I, and he shows me how to do it and I update it for a month. He comes back from the trip and I go, hey, here's your, here's your spreadsheet back. It's, it's your, he goes, no, 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 you've been doing that. You can, you can do that now. And this seven years of employment, not knowing anything was him just handing me stuff. And, and I would go, I don't know how to do that. He goes, that's okay. Here's how you do it. And I would do it. And I would go, hey, okay, I did it. He goes, no, you can keep doing that. And I never even got promoted to being a marketing director. One day he goes, oh yeah, you're the marketing director. Did you know that? I said, no. I think there's something to be said about like everybody wants titles and it's not about a title. It's about the work and you follow this process. It is about doing things that you don't want to do to serve a greater organization so that you eventually find yourself in a place where you go, okay, now I know what I want to do. Clarity comes with action. And apprenticeship is this process that we have to put ourselves through. And I think in many ways, God is guiding us through that, that process. 
We have to be willing to say yes to things that we don't want to do right now, understanding that we're being molded into the kind of leader that he wants us to be. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And I love the kind of the picture of the apprentice model, journeyman, master. Yeah. And I think the electrician field kind of follows that. It's yeah. interesting because I talk to people I, like that. It's like a different language when they're talking about like journeyman. Yeah. What are you talking about? And There's it's only a few people, a few tr uh, uh, trades that still follow that now. Yeah, which I would imagine like an electrician, you really want to make sure you're a master before you touch and deal right. with certain things for yeah. sure. So. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you this. Is your next book your masterpiece you're submitting to the <laughs> guild or is that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. <laughs> not, not yet. Uh, Hemingway said, we are all apprentices in a craft nobody masters. It's a great quote. Yeah. <laughs> Depressing. Which yeah. actually I have, a, I have a quote you can't see. Obviously because we're on a podcast or you can see, but yeah. um, this uh, Hemingway, Hemingway quote about like, uh, there's not a friend as loyal as a book. Yep. And the people I work with love to make fun of me for that because... <laughs> It's so depressing. Like, what? Your friends are only books, but no, there's more. <laughs> yes. um, but hey, let me let me talk a little bit about your own leadership um, growth and kind of where you're at. And I would love to know, like, even during the week, um, what are some like really essential leadership habits that you practice that um, that you kind of like attribute a lot of your effectiveness and impact on? I just read a book called Scaling Up, uh, and and it's sort of the 2.0 version of an earlier book um, called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits by Vern Harnish. One idea in there that I really uh, took to heart was the idea of the daily huddle, getting together with either your whole team or certain influencers on your team, depending on the size of the team, for just a quick like 15-minute, hey, here's what we're doing today. We were just able to pivot so much more easily when we started doing that because I realized you know, if you have a weekly meeting and you go, hey, here's what I'm working on this week, blah, 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 blah. And then you go do that. And then we, you know, you come back together and everybody tells you as the leader what they did this week. And you go, ah, you did that wrong, you know, yeah. or, or that's not what I meant. Or they needed something from you. And for whatever reason, they didn't reach out. And, you know, you're getting this feedback instead of on a daily basis, you're getting on a weekly basis. And it just, it takes longer time to get to where you want to go. Now, at the same time, I'm not a fan of, you know, doing the death by meeting, as Pat Lanchoni says, yeah. where you can just overdo meetings. Uh, one of the things I learned working for a ministry was how to um, have, I don't know that I learned it from working in a ministry. I just happened to be at a ministry when we did this. <laughs> uh, I learned how to have quick, uh, effective meetings. And the goal of a meeting uh, is to make a decision. That's the only reason you ever have a meeting. And if you're just doing status updates or things that you can email, it's not worth having the meeting. And you make the meeting quick, you know, 15 minutes, no longer. Uh, but the daily huddle was really uh, has been really useful. It's a new thing, and and it's working. I go, oh no no no, you're doing that thing. What we want to do is this, or somebody saying, oh that's what you needed from me, or you know all kinds of things. So that's you know more regular check ins that are short in time, so you're not micromanaging every step. Totally. But but they're getting what they need from you, and and vice versa. Secondly, I think it's just a mindset that I am recently grappling with, which is this. I believe that everything's my fault. So if any failure in the organization is a failure of leadership, and I don't mean that on some like I'm getting down on myself or whatever, like I have finally accepted, it took a while of years of passing the buck, I finally accepted that anything uh, negative that happens in my organization is ultimately my responsibility. Uh, and, uh, I think this is the mark of great leaders and I'm trying to emulate it, you know, kicking and screaming, <laughs> but I once sent an email as a marketing director that was a wrong email to send. 
and it made a lot of our donors incredibly upset and frustrated. The I mean, Game of Thrones gif, is that what it was? <laughs> yeah. <I'm just> <laughs> you know? And, uh, and, and I didn't send it. I was on vacation and my copywriter wrote the, the email and they sent me the, the test email. I'm on vacation in the mountains of North Carolina, barely getting uh, cell service. And I'm, you know, checking it, skimming it. My wife's like, come back, you know, and join us. And I'm going, hang on. Uh, yeah, sure. That sounds good. You know, I was being lazy. And because um, what I should have done is I should have said, you need to write this a week beforehand. I need to approve this before I go. Yada, yada, yada. And I was just, you know, uh, rushing through it. Sends the email. I immediately get a phone call from my boss. And he goes, what is this? People are upset. Da, 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 da. And I said, yeah. He goes, did you approve this? I said, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, you know, it's my, my fault. And so he, uh, my boss, the executive director, was talking to kind of the other leaders in the organization and they were all upset at me. And he, he goes, no, it, you know, it's okay. I talked to Jeff, you know, and he, he stood by me and sort of protected me and shielded me. And I'd seen him do this before, which was why I said, look, like, this is my fault. And somebody that I was working with who wrote the email says, no, 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 I'm sorry. Like, it, like you don't have to do that. I said, no, like this is leadership. Like I'm not doing this as a martyr. I'm not doing this for a pat on the back because the truth is it really is my fault. Uh, recently I was talking to somebody on my team and we were talking about this issue where uh, my customer service person was um, basically giving people refunds and, and wasn't really asking them why they're getting a refund. And, I, and, and it was a lot of refunds. And I was like, well, like, you know, that's money that we would like to keep in the business if possible, you know, or at least find out why we're issuing the refunds. And so we were talking about it. And um, I said, well, you know what I would do in this situation is this, this, and this. And she was just unaware. And she said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's, you know, let's do that. And she said, she said I'm sorry. I said, no, you have nothing to be sorry for. This is my fault. It's not even a bad thing. It's just we didn't do it. Now we know and, and now we can move forward. I think most of us live in fear of getting chewed out by the boss. And, and I think great leadership is about saying the buck stops with me. Uh, everything in your on your team, in your organization is your fault. One way or the other. If somebody screwed up, you hired them. You manage them. You set the parameters around them. It's your fault. And, and, and you know, the buck stops with you. You're, you know, you ultimately set the pace and tone of the organization. And what I find is when you have people saying it's so-and-so's fault, it's such-and-such's fault, like they never own anything. And, you know, they ultimately lose their jobs. I mean, I see, see it again and again and again because if it's not your fault this time, it's never going to be your fault and there's always going to be an excuse, which means I can't trust you. Because it's never going to be your fault. There's always going to be an excuse, you know, like when you don't meet the deadline, when you don't hit the, you know, the target. And so it's hard. Uh, every, yeah. every immature bone in my body wants to point things. <laughs> and I realized that's not a godly thing to do. And it's not what a good leader does. I think that's a powerful habit to think about the implications of a pastor, a senior pastor, a lead pastor, taking that on in that kind of perspective, where I think we see so many issues between staff because of finger pointing and because of blame and because of, you know, whatever it might be, but having a senior pastor take complete responsibility for everybody on the team and everything that happens in the church. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a different paradigm. I think it's a great thing to think about and dwell on. And I'm sure something for our readers to really chew on as well. And you will never have more loyal people than when you own all of all of the consequences, all of the negative things. When when somebody does something stupid on your team, and and you step forward to the angry donor or parishioner, and you go, "That's on me. You can be angry at me. Don't 
like, because your job as a leader is to protect your people, is to give them a safe place to do their thing. And if you do that, like, first of all, like, it's hard and it hurts and, you know, and, and getting all the criticism is, is difficult, but that's your job. That's your calling. But when you do that, the people uh, will have your back. You know, your people on your team will have your back. So when I did that, just because I had seen it modeled for me, and this copywriter who wrote this email and, and just wasn't really thinking, um, and I just, I said, it's my fault. It's not, because my boss wanted to say, well, it, you know, he wanted to say, oh, it's not your fault. It's, it's so-and-so's fault. I said, no, like, I approved it. She, you know, she works for me. I hired her. It's my fault. All the consequences need to fall on me. If I need to call people or email them or do whatever, like put my name on, it's my fault. And she saw me do that. And she was one of my most loyal team members after that. You know, never, <laughs> what do you need? Never question anything. And so, you know, like, I don't think that's why you do it. But if you want a great team, if you don't want people backbiting and criticizing you and second guessing you, stand up for your team, take the blame, own it. And when something goes wrong, say, hey, this is my fault and here's what we're going to do to do a you know, better job with it. Um, you will create loyalty like you've never seen before. Uh, no, I love that too. And I think there is, there's always this maybe small residue of skepticism within teams sometimes. So I think where things like that happen that build a trust and make it authentic, um, you just can't replace that for sure. And I think that kind of investment with your team that's real, that's genuine, that's taking risk and taking the blame, super critical for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. So, so let me ask you this. Um, is you're obviously a writer, reader. Uh, what are some of the best books that you've read in the last year that you would recommend? And they don't have to be leadership books. They could be anything, but just something that's really kind of like stirred your thinking up or stirred you up. Could be fiction, nonfiction, anything on the board. I always have to look this up because I, I, I try to read a couple books a week. So I'm a pretty voracious reader. I read a lot of fiction, or a lot of nonfiction, and I read a lot of biography. I read a great book. Elvis biography. Um, uh, it's a two-part biography. The first part is uh, Last Train to Memphis, just a fascinating book. Uh, leadership and business book called Scaling Up. Great, great book. Yeah. Very practical. If you ever read like Good to Great, I mean, it, it's it's that level of you're going to get a bunch of ideas and immediately go start applying them. And it's, you know, a study of lots of great businesses and organizations, uh, both nonprofit and for-profit. You know, another kind of like interesting book was The Geography of Genius by Eric Weiner, which was, um, it was like a travelogue. This guy's a traveler and he went to the most creative cities in the world. So like Florence, um, he, it, it was like unlikely, some more unlikely creative places like Florence, Italy, Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, you know, had this really interesting renaissance in the 18th century, um, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, he went to all these different places and he said, what makes these places creative? Uh, super interesting book. A Whole New Mind, Dan Pink. I'd never read that book. I read that this past year. And um, I, yeah, I think it was about a year ago that I read Talk Like Ted, which is you know a, a book about speaking, yeah. public speaking. That was a great book too. So those were, I think, five books that I read that I enjoyed. Thanks again to Jeff Goins for joining us this week as our special guest on the Church Leaders Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and also send it to somebody who might enjoy listening to it or might benefit from listening to it. Also, you can download the show notes for this episode and every episode at churchleaders.com forward slash podcast. In the show notes, we linked to our guest resources, anything we mentioned in the show, and to some of their top content on churchleaders.com. As always, if there are people that you would love to hear us interview next on the Church Leaders Podcast, email us at podcast at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again next week.
You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.